America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the country of Mexico, the United States neighbor and key partner in trade, regional diplomacy, and security cooperation. Our guest is Jorge Castaneda. Dr. Castaneda served as Foreign Minister of Mexico from 2000 to 2003. He holds a PhD in Economic History from Université de Paris I, Pantheon Sorbonne, and is a renowned public intellectual, political scientist, and prolific writer on Mexican and Latin American politics. He has taught at institutions including Mexico's National Autonomous University, UNAM, Princeton University, and University of California, Berkeley, and is the Global Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Latin American Studies at NYU. Dr. Castaneda has authored over 15 books, the most recent of which is entitled America Through Foreign Eyes. Mexico is home to some of the most advanced ancient civilizations known to history, including the Olmec, Maya, Toltec, Zapotec, and Aztec. Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés battled the Aztec Empire in the early 16th century and began the Spanish colonization of Mexico and large swaths of the Americas. In September of 1810, Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla led a revolt that sparked an 11-year struggle for independence. Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. Two years later, the United States adopted the Monroe Doctrine, which pushed back against European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. But all was not peaceful in the hemisphere. In 1846, border disputes over Texas erupted into the Mexican-American War. After many bloody battles, Mexico lost the war and signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Mexico ceded 55% of its land to the United States, and the United States agreed to pay $15 million for damage to Mexican land. The Gadsden Purchase of 1853 solidified the U.S.-Mexico border. A decade later, as a civil war raged in the United States, Britain, Spain, and France invaded Mexico to collect debts from the Mexican government. Britain and Spain left quickly after settling with the government, but French troops remained until 1867. Migration from Mexico to the United States boomed into the turn of the 20th century. Jobs associated with the U.S. railway expansion drew some migrants, while others fled political and economic upheaval. Starting in 1876, General Porfirio Diaz ruled the country in what was known as Porfiriato a political system in which he re-elected himself seven times. Finally, in 1910, Francisco Madero rebelled against Porfirian rule, along with Emiliano Zapata and Francisco Pancho Villa, who led dissatisfied Mexican workers and peasants in a 10-year-long Mexican revolution. In that decade, over 890,000 Mexicans migrated to the United States. Following coups and political upheavals, 
the Constitution of 1917 established Mexico as a permanent democracy, although from 1929 to 2000, the country was ruled by the same party, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, or PRI. Immigration issues dominated the U.S.-Mexico relationship for much of the 20th century. U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt's good neighbor policy of 1933 aimed to stabilize the Western Hemisphere through trade instead of military intervention. But subsequent policies concerning immigration, temporary laborers, and repatriation created tension between the two countries. The three decades after World War II, now known as the Milagro Mexicano, the Mexican miracle saw steady yearly GDP growth of 3 to 4 percent, due in part to robust public investment in agriculture and infrastructure and protective tariffs. With the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, on January 1, 1994, Mexico and the United States became even stronger trade partners. Corruption and economic inequality persisted in Mexico despite a period of economic liberalization democratic transition, and institutional consolidation in the late 90s and early 2000s. A losing war on drugs, strengthening transnational organized crime networks, changing immigration policies combined with financial crises to highlight the need for economic and security collaboration between the two countries. The 2,000-mile shared border remains a focal point as migrants from Central and South America flee insecurity and economic hardship. The border is the principal arrival zone for illicit drugs smuggled into the United States. It is a lucrative criminal enterprise as Mexican drug trafficking organizations make between 19 and $29 billion annually from drug sales in the United States. Mexico and the U.S. partner closely in the fight against the drug cartels, but Mexico carries a heavier burden as homicides and violence related to drug cartels continue to rise. The populist Mexican president Andres Manuel López Obrador, better known as AMLO, came into power in December of 2018 after his third controversial campaign for the presidency. AMLO calls his political project the fourth transformation of Mexican public life and portrays his election as analogous to the independence from Spain or the revolution. Backers of AMLO's project embraced his promises to eradicate corruption and focus on the approximately 50% of Mexico's population that is lower income. Critics of AMLO's project lament his nostalgia for the pre-2000 era, including deep skepticism of private enterprise, austere fiscal policy, and hugs not bullets approach toward drug cartels, a statist approach to economic affairs, and efforts to extend his Morena political party's control over institutions. We welcome Dr. Castaneda following legislative elections in Mexico on June 6th, amid a spate of consequential elections across Latin America, halfway into AMLO's presidency, and 18 months after the renegotiation of NAFTA into the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Dr. Castaneda, welcome to Battlegrounds. Bienvenido. Hey, let me begin by saying how much I've enjoyed our conversations, and I'm really excited to have a conversation that our, our listeners can listen into here today. Uh, General, it's a privilege to be with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, I, th I thought we might begin. I really, I, I love your book, by the way, America Th Through Foreign Eyes, and, and it's really thought-provoking, and and I think you you really do, you do really um, meet your, 
objective of, of helping Americans understand better how they're seen by others, right? And and in the book, you talk a lot about the importance of history and being able to understand at least the recent past, right, as, as the first step in making a projection into the future. So I, I thought maybe you could reflect back on your time uh, as, as, uh, as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, uh, what you hope to accomplish in connection with the Mexico-U.S. relationship, how how far along did you get uh, in, the, in in connection with um, accomplishing those objectives, and and maybe just what your your assessment of of how the relationship has evolved since then? Well, you know what what I tried to do uh, with President Fox uh, was to try and put the U.S. Mexican relationship on a different footing in several aspects, but mainly in three. Firstly, to try and uh, push the idea at least of something like a North American community coming after NAFTA. Uh, a little bit more um, standing institutions, a little bit more of uh, a common view of the world, a little bit more of even adding energy and immigration where both had been left out from NAFTA in 1993. Um, <clears throat> that was one thing we tried to do. Uh, did we achieve it? Not really. Uh, for a series of reasons, that was perhaps an idea that whose time had not come. Secondly, I tried uh, to uh, have us view third party issues, the United States and ourselves in Mexico, more, in a more similar fashion. It was never going to be identical, but a more similar fashion. View the situation, for example, at the time in Venezuela in a similar fashion. Perhaps begin to view uh, issues such as human rights, collective defense of democracy, the environment, climate change in a similar fashion. And most importantly, what I tried to do and what President Fox was very insistent upon and we were very hopeful about was some kind of what then we used to call immig an immigration agreement between Mexico and the United States, and what later was called a, a comprehensive immigration reform. It basically means the same thing. And I think we were on the right track. We were moving forward with problems and everything. And of course, 9-11 came along and uh, that all of a sudden made us no longer a priority. And uh, it never got back on track. It's still not on track today, as President Biden has just uh, taken office and has sent a major immigration reform package to the Congress. And it seems to be stuck like President Obama was, was and like President Bush's was twice. So, yeah, we've, we bit off perhaps more than we could chew. Well, it doesn't mean it's any less important today than it than it was back then. Of course, we see the you know, we see the crisis on the border, and yeah, you know, I'd I'd like to just ask you since we do have well, kind of a relatively new president, I guess, with President Lopez Obrador and 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 uh, in Mexico, but but a brand new president with President Biden. You know, what's what's your advice for for those two? What should their agenda be, and and uh, what do you think are the greatest opportunities that, that they could exploit together, and? And maybe what are the pitfalls to avoid or the work that remains to be done in, in immigration, for example? Well, on immigration, ideally, I think that they should, uh, both presidents should uh, uh, <clears throat> add up their respective proposals. President Biden has basically uh, suggested 
some kind of legalization, regularization, if you want to call it amnesty at the end of the day, it doesn't change a whole lot. It basically means making everybody who doesn't have papers in the United States today, around 12 million people, half of which are Mexican, roughly, making them legal. How, for how long, what's the path to citizenship, what's the path to residency, all of that can be talked about, negotiated. That's basically what President Biden has insisted upon. And President Lopez Obrador, uh, one area I agree with him on, has intelligently suggested that uh, some kind of agreement on temporary workers from Mexico and perhaps Central America also should be established. The United States is needs more than ever, needs low-skill, low-wage labor from Mexico and the Northern Triangle, mainly Mexico, simply because of population. There's, there's no comparison between the sizes of these countries. Um, as it is, the United States is taking in more H-2A and H-2B workers for ag and for other services than ever before. Yeah. And it could take in many more uh, without depressing wages in the United States and not necessarily creating a, neither an underclass nor either uh, uh, a sector of US society that would become citizenship, become citizens long in the future. These two things put together, I think would be very helpful. Um, that's what we talked about with President Bush back in the year 2001, 2002. And it's basically what everybody has been trying to do ever since then, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, you know, I, I never understood that. It, it makes sense from every perspective, right? It makes sense for Mexican citizens who want to work temporarily in the United States and to, to make more money and build a better future. It makes sense for employers. And it, it makes sense from a government revenue perspective, too, in terms of taxation and so forth. It would pay for itself many times over, actually. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is an opportunity. I, I wish sometimes... Uh, Jorge, that we would begin conversations with what we can agree on, right? And and you could get a lot done. Any other opportunities you think that we could exploit? What, what other opportunities are we missing? I'm thinking maybe, you know, in connection with adjustments to global supply chains, right after the COVID-19 crisis and the degree to which fragility of those supply chains, especially those that were over-reliant on China, uh, exposed really huge vulnerabilities. I mean, I, th I think a lot of that manufacturing should go to Mexico, but but it seems like we're not taking full advantage of the opportunity. What's your assessment of, of how we in North America together uh, emerge from this pandemic-related recession and 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 uh, and and, and jumpstart economic growth and and uh, and and development? Well, I think taking advantage both of the pandemic and the lessons we've learned from the pandemic, but also uh, the existence now of USMCA, as it's called, a sort of new NAFTA or NAFTA two point. Uh, I think a lot could be done in the sense of having both the United States and Mexico and Canada, of course, uh, work towards the reconcentration or relocalization, if you like, of the supply chains in North America. But it does take a bit of a North American effort. It's not likely, I think, HR, that this will happen on its own. If the market itself could drive it, that would be ideal. But Probably not. It probably needs a proactive policy from the three countries and at least from the United States and Mexico. A lot of uh, supply chain of the parts of the supply chains, links in the supply chains that are in China would be better off 
in North America for everybody, except perhaps for China, but they have many ways of replacing that also. The issue is how much do, do the governments have to do in order for this to happen? And for example, how much does the government of the United States, the Biden administration have to do in terms of accepting that a job in Mexico, granted, is not the same as a job in the US, but it's better than a job in China. Yeah. It's sort of a halfway house uh, mm -hmm. compromise. Ideally, the United States, and this is true, I think, for the Trump administration and for the Biden administration, many people would think that the U.S. should bring back as many manufacturing jobs as it could. It's a lot of discussion of that. A lot of economists think it's not possible nor desirable. But let's suppose that that's what the American people want. Okay, that's what they elected presidents for. That's what elections are for. A job in Mexico is somewhere in between. That's a little bit the spirit of USMCA, at least as far as the automobile industry is concerned. I think a lot could be done there, but it will take proactive stances on the part of the three governments. I don't think the market alone will make this happen. Right. Uh, of course, you know, higher wages in Mexico, good jobs in Mexico means more demand. Uh, for U.S. products in Mexico, where, where we do have you know, uh, you know, a tremendous uh, amount of, of exports going to Mexico, which we don't have going to China. So I, I agree that this is an opportunity to make supply chains more resilient. And I think to just to, to help North America grow, you know, come out of this pandemic even, even stronger. There's some concern, though, about, about the policies of President Lopez Obrador, especially in connection with his economic and fiscal policies. I saw you quoted in the Economist on this subject uh, recently, and and um, and so it's it's this it's this strange kind of distrust that he has uh, for any corporation and nostalgia almost for you know statist practices and and national companies and so forth. What more do you think has to be done in Mexico from a policy perspective to take full advantage of US, uh, US uh, MCA the trade agreement and and to help the, the, the Mexican economy grow? Well, I, I think President Lopez Obrador's policies, macroeconomic policies mainly, but also his sort of gut feelings are very misguided. I think he's doing the country a great deal of harm by trying to bring it back to the 1970s with a very statist, uh, nationalist, introverted, uh, perspective on Mexico, on the United States, on life, on private investment, on foreign investment. There are a few areas that he's particularly irascible about. He just doesn't like the idea of foreigners being involved in energy, in mining, <clears throat> railroads, probably at some point also in banking, although that hasn't come up yet so, so far. And I think he's doing the country a great deal of harm on these issues. Now, the issue, the question really is whether the United States and Canada, given USMCA and given the supply chains and given the linkages and given the being neighbors, uh, believe that these issues are valid, legitimate, bilateral or trilateral issues. In other words, if it's legitimate for President Biden or Premier Trudeau to sit down with President Lopez Obrador and say, hey, hold on a second. You really can't do this on energy. 
because of climate change, because of the Paris agreements, because we're neighbors, because there's a USMCA, because you have to respect contracts, because the rule of law has to work. You can't do this stuff. Is that a valid point for someone like President Biden to make to President Lopez Obrador? There are many Mexicans, including President Lopez Obrador himself, who say no. Uh, energy is a sovereign domestic Mexican issue, and the United States has no business telling us what to do about it. Other people believe, yes, unless you have voluntarily ceded sovereignty through an agreement, a treaty, a Paris agreement, what have you. Uh, sovereignty is not an abstract, absolute notion. Uh, there is more sovereignty, less sovereignty in each country, depending on the moment, etc. This is a very American discussion also, by the way. There are many uh, very distinguished people in the U.S. Senate or House of Representatives or in previous administrations who have a very absolute notion of American sovereignty also. Uh, but this is a real discussion we should have that Mexico and the United States and Canada should should have. And and I think whenever we can explain to our citizens, it's it's to the benefit of of all of us, right? To 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 grow together and 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 to work together in a cooperative manner in connection, you know, with supply chains and trade and economic development. You know, I, of course, uh, President Lopez Obrador re reflects popular sentiment in Mexico. Uh, he was. He was elected. Of course, we, Mexico just went through the midterm elections. But I, I thought what you might what you might explain to our listeners is how have politics evolved within Mexico since your time as as minister? What gave rise to the Morena party uh, and, and President Lopez Obrador? Well, I, I think there's there's two ways of explaining or two factors that explain uh, the advent of Morena and Lopez Obrador and his statist, nationalist, somewhat authoritarian, introverted uh, outlook and policies. One has to do with the mediocre um, <clears throat> economic and social results that the last five Mexican presidents have had uh, ever since uh, at least President Cedillo, then Fox, let's say from of the democratic era, Cedillo, Fox, Calderón, and Peña Nieto. We could include President Salinas from the early 80, mid-80s, but well, that's a long time ago. The results have not been good. Uh, economic growth has been mediocre, two, two and a half percent per year for a middle-income country like Mexico, that's not enough. Uh, the average wage has remained about the same in industry and in services everywhere. The informal economy has remained as large as it was roughly half the economy, educational levels, health levels have improved very little. In other words, the results are not good. And people got fed up and they were rightly fed up with all of this and with the corruption, et cetera. And that's the second factor. President Fox and President Calderon, both from the PAN party, party that had never governed in Mexico, that represented a break with the 70-year-old PRI hegemony, did not really break, make a full break with the past. Uh, they did not investigate the past. They did not denounce the past. They did not break with the past. Uh, they didn't throw a bunch of people from the past in jail. Uh, I pushed a great deal, President Fox, for him to do this. He decided it wasn't prudent. I never talked about it with President Calderon, but uh, obviously he didn't do it. And so Mexicans in 2018 look around and see 
hey, it's these same old corrupt guys who are governing the country and they're governing it the same way. Uh, they're stealing, they're lying, they're uh, taking advantage, they're peddling influence. And in addition, the results are lousy. Let's try something else. And you know, there, there is a lot of concern about this authoritarian turn by Lopez Obrador. It looks a little bit to me like the way President Erdogan consolidated power in Turkey. I mean, it seems like he's trying to take really uh, exclusive control, his party, to have enduring influence right over institutions. Do you do you share that concern? How, how do you how do you see his actions in connection with you, the military, the judiciary and other institutions of government? I share that concern. Absolutely. HR. And I think that the parallel with uh, Erdogan in Turkey or Orban in Hungary uh, or Duterte in the Philippines or a few others, it's a very good par parallel. I think President Lopez Obrador is out for a power grab consolidating the executive branch power over the uh, legislative branch, over the judicial branch, and particularly the Supreme Court, and over many of the independent agencies that we've built up in Mexico within the government, but that are independent, like in the U.S., like in Europe, etc., from the central bank to the um, Federal Commission on Competition, to the Statistics Institute, to the Transparency Institute, uh, to the electoral authority, we could go on and on. He really wants to concentrate all power in his hands uh, so that he can carry out what he calls his fourth transformation of Mexico. Again, the issue, HR, is whether this is a legitimate bilateral issue for President Biden to bring up with President Lopez Obrador or not. Should Biden stay away from this uh, and simply look the other way and say, hey, this is a Mexican issue, do whatever you guys want, it's none of my business? Or does he say, as let's say, for example, the Europeans have said with Turkey, by the way, we're using that analogy, hold on a second, you wanted to join the European Union, now you don't want to, but there was a time when you wanted to. Well, by the way, there's a bunch of things you can, you have to do, and a bunch of things you can't do if you want to join the European Union. Well, Biden could sort of say that to Lopez Obrador, look, you want to be part of USMCA. You want to be part of some kind of North American community. Well, we have to share certain values. We have to share certain principles. There's stuff you have to do, and there's stuff you can't do. In addition to which, you know, as the United States, as your neighbor, we have to, um, you know, we want you to run your country in a way that is compatible with uh, prosperity, with equality with development. We're not saying you want to, you got to go back to what there was before. No, what we want is for you to continue along the democratic path that Mexico inaugurated in 1997 or the year 2000. But, you know, this is a very tough decision for President Biden and his team to make. When you were in office, in a sense, you had to make it too with President Trump, except you didn't coincide, you personally, I mean, in general, with Lopez Obrador, but President Trump did. And he made a conscious decision, I think, which was to look the other way. I don't want to dispute it, but I do think that was the decision President Trump made. You know, one of the issues that will certainly be on the agenda is is uh, is drug cartels, uh, drug trafficking and organized crime. Right. And because this is a problem that crosses the border, right? it affects both both of our of our countries. You know how many Americans have been suffering from drug addiction and overdose now from 
uh, dr drugs that are they're trafficked lar largely through Mexico. Mexico is a is a is a through through station for for many of these drugs. And and President Lopez Obrador has been pretty tough in terms of taking over institutions of uh, of government, but not tough on the cartels, right? With this policy of of hugs, not bullets. It doesn't seem like it's working. I'm thinking about the recent midterm elections and almost 90 politicians assassinated, you know, d during uh, during the election season. How, how do you view this really difficult problem, right, of of the growing power of, of these of these cartels, the effect on, on security and and the health right of Mexican and American citizens? You know, I, I'm thinking of, you know, of, of Colombia, you know, in the late 90s. Right. It looks it looks pretty bad for hey, what what's your assessment of the situation and what more can be done? Well, I, I agree with you that uh, it does seem that President Lopez Obrador has changed policies up to a point in regard to his predecessors in terms of a more hands-off, uh, live and let live type of uh, attitude with regard to the cartels. But the problem is that while this may or may not be a, a well thought out policy, it hasn't brought the desired result, which was to bring down violence in Mexico. You can make a case, uh, and it has been made, that if the cartels stick to their business, which is exporting drugs to the United States, and they do not generate the levels of violence or of territorial control that we've seen in Mexico, let's say, since 2007, well, then controlling drugs in the United States becomes an American problem. And the United States has to decide how it wants to face that problem, which it really has never wanted to face or look directly at because it has always wanted to find a solution abroad, abroad in the producer countries, abroad in the transit countries. Uh, you could make that case, but that's not the case that Lopez Obrador is making. And it's not the result of his policies. So on the one hand, you have more American opioid overdose deaths than ever, largely due to fentanyl coming now through from Mexico, through Mex Mexico, from China. You don't have lower levels of violence in Mexico. The number of willful homicides per 100,000 inhabitants is as high as it has ever been. You probably have less cooperation between Mexico and U.S. law enforcement, drug enforcement agencies for a series of reasons. So we're probably in many ways in the worst situation, the worst place we've been for, for many years. From there, you can take it in any direction you like, a more benign neglect attitude, a more forceful attitude more cooperation with the U.S., less cooperation. You, you can find all sorts of options. But this one, what we've got today, probably is the worst one. Hey, another another question I have for you, besides really the need for us to, to work together on the drug problem that, that, as you mentioned, is in the maybe the worst possible situation is is really our just our approach to our hemisphere together. I mean, what one of the one of the aspects of, of my job as national security advisor that I enjoyed was working with counterparts and and friends uh in the region and i think we actually despite you know the 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 uh the the offense that donald trump often gave to our mexican uh neighbors 
we worked actually very well together on, on hemispheric issues of of uh, uh, especially how to cope with the crisis in, in Venezuela, for example, uh, the approach to take uh, to Cuba and its its continued efforts to export its authoritarianism, uh, the the effort to to cope with the refugee crisis associated with uh, with um, you know with the catastrophe uh, in Venezuela, for example. But you know there seems to be a, a real shift going on, Jorge, across the region, where uh, in in Colombia, in Chile, in in in, in Argentina, uh, there are, are, are movements that are deeply skeptical of the free market economic systems in in, the, in those countries and are demanding some form uh, of reform. Uh, but then also, the, the, I've seen we've seen the pendulum shift against sort of the socialist statist models. In in, uh, in in Bolivia, Bolivia, for example, or in Ecuador, what do you see happening in the region uh, from an ideological perspective, uh, and and this 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 sort of competition? It seems like between visions that are more free market capitalist visions and and statist economic and socialist models. Well, firstly, HR, I think it is true what you said that at least in 2017 and 2018. Uh, Mexico and the United States, the previous Mexican administration and the Trump administration in, in Washington uh, worked well together, for example, on issues like Venezuela uh, and like Nicaragua, by the way, which is once again in the headlines as President Ortega is running now for his third re-election and has just banned his main opponent, Cristiana Chamorro, from even running. He doesn't even want to face her in the election. He just banned her from running. So I think that there are times and places and moments where we can cooperate a great deal uh, in the hemisphere on bilateral, trilateral, third party issues, Venezuela, Cuba, et cetera, but also on matters such as corruption, drugs, uh, violence, et cetera. Now, the issue is, I think, as you very rightly point out, that there is a shift in uh, South America, particularly more than in Central America, and, and in Mexico, in the sense that the same attitude I was describing about people being fed up in Mexico with the results, the mediocre results of the last 25 years, uh, they're fed up in Latin America a little bit because of the similarly mediocre results. Um, Chile is perhaps the best example. It was a success story for many years, but people perhaps as a product as, as a result of that success want more and they're right in wanting more and they're not getting more and they want to change. Now, I think that the change that many are seeking in countries like Peru, like Colombia, perhaps next year, next year's presidential elections, perhaps even in Chile that's holding presidential elections at the end of this year, is the wrong direction. It's the direction that people took in Argentina, people took in Mexico, obviously in Venezuela now 20 years ago, and I think it leads to disaster. But it's important for us, meaning Mexico, United States, uh, civil society in the United States, academia, the business community, etc., to understand that there is a certain amount of fed up uh, in Latin America with policies or attitudes or approaches that haven't delivered. Um, some people will say, well, then we have to double down and go further, maybe. Or some people will say we have to adjust the model, modulate it. But in any case, what you're seeing in one country after another um, 
You'll see it in Brazil in next year's presidential elections, I have no doubt. I mean, uh, former President Lula will mount a very, very severe, very serious challenge to President Bolsonaro, who will win, it's hard to say, more than a year and a half before the elections, but that the challenge will be very serious, there's no question about it. So, yeah, it, it's important to realize that that shift is there, and there are valid reasons for that shift. It's a misguided shift. Yeah. It will lead to the wrong place, but there are valid reasons for it. Jorge, in, in your book, you know, you kind of lament the polarization you've seen in the United States, right? And, and, and that grows out of a certain discontent and elements of our population feeling disenfranchised as if they don't have a say in how they're governed. Do you see that playing out in the, in the hemisphere more broadly as well? Because it seems like in these many elections that are occurring in the hemisphere this year, the choice is between polar opposites. I think in Peru, this is uh, this is the situation, for example. Um, is, is that, do you think that's the main trend is toward polarization uh, overall? I think there, there's an issue of polarization in Latin America, but there's also an issue of a similar type of demand or, or agenda in some of the Latin American countries and in the United States, for example, in Chile. Um, it turns out that the privatization of uh, social security, let's call it that, use the American term, back under the Pinochet dictatorship um, didn't work. We didn't know before that it didn't work because people hadn't retired. But the guys who began paying into their private uh, pension fund system with a defined contribution back in the 80s all of a sudden started retiring in the last couple of years. And they've ended up with a pension, which is 20, 25, 30% of their last salary. Well, a lot of Americans have found out that either their private sort of 401k type of retirement programs together with social security is not enough for a decent retirement, for a decent uh, elderly, long elderly life because that's the other issue. It's not just a few years anymore. Um, I just was just 68. Um, I'm retired. I don't want to be retired, but I hope to live another, you know, active 20 or so years. And that's what life expectancy leads me to believe that you're in a similar situation, though you're younger. Um, it's a long time. Well, you know, all of a sudden people are realizing, hey, hold it. Uh, I'm not assured really of anything. The same is true for healthcare. We have all sorts of different healthcare systems in Latin America, like some are like the US, some are like uh, Europe, some are like Canada, but none of them are satisfactory. And so you have a similar agenda there with the United States. We have ethnic or race issues in many Latin American countries. The most obvious ones, are, of course, are Brazil and the Caribbean nations. But for example, Chile, it's a country where the uh, native peoples, the original peoples, basically the Mapuches, have always been ignored. Well, in their new constitutional assembly, now they have a quota system, so they are a guaranteed a representation in the constitutional assembly. I'm not saying that's the best solution, but obviously something like that has to be done. Well, again, this looks a lot like what's going on in the United States in terms of demands, if not of results or of solutions or responses to those demands. And that brings the polarization that you, that you were mentioning. 
because these are a lot of people in the U.S. and in Latin America who, for different reasons, want more. They're right in wanting more, and they're encountering very serious obstacles on the part of the people who have more and don't want to give it up. Um, it's an age-old story, but it's still with us. Well, you know, Jorge, I wonder if we, if you might turn your view then north of the border. I have your book here. It's it's all marked up and 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 dog-eared and everything. It is really a thought. It's a thought-provoking book, right? And 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 uh, and, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. And I enjoyed like your I enjoyed the perspective you brought to it. You're you're a fan of of our country, uh, but you also lament what you see as, as shortcomings. You talked about you know our. Our, our long longevity is as individuals, but in the book also you you write about the the lasting triumph and enhanced longevity of American civilization. I think is your phrase, and you call it. I use a phrase called um, a fulfilled modernity will come. I think you predict when when Americans acknowledge the end of their difference with the rest of the world, or at least with rich countries. But I kind of I reacted maybe a little bit defensively to that word because right? I I think that you know I've 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 maybe bought into the idea of American exceptionalism and and I'm thinking about how your how your observation contrasts with with other foreigners who have looked at America through foreign eyes and I I thought of Lee Kuan Yew's quotation shortly before he died certainly it was well after the financial crisis and and he said that hey America's strengths were this can do approach right this exceptional can do approach it's entrepreneurial culture uh you know the great urge uh and and when i say america i mean united states part of of our america um and and the great urge to start new enterprises and create wealth and 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 uh and he celebrated you know the the um the privacy that that americans accord to individual interest right which makes them more aggressively competitive and i think one of his final words of advice was whatever you do don't become like europe but you, you you argue in the book that 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 America should evolve toward more of a a welfare state modeled, you know, on maybe the Scandinavian countries or, or European countries. Could you just summarize for our viewers your your argument in your book and why you think uh, America needs to evolve in in that direction? Well, in a nutshell, HR, I think that the United States was able to do without uh, universal social safety net or welfare state, or whatever you prefer to call it, like the European one, but not only the European one. It's, this is also true for Canada. It's also true for Australia, New Zealand. It's partly true for Singapore, since you bring up Lee Kuan Yew, uh, and Japan. It was able to do with, without this because of it being from the get-go, a middle-class country. Obviously, as I say in the book, a middle-class country uh, with a whole lot of exceptions. Uh, obviously, to begin with, the Native American exception, the African American exception, the Chinese exception, in the 19th century, we could go on and on about that. But for a bunch of people, this was a middle class country where people who belonged to that middle class and who were inside the tent, so to speak, basically had everything that the Europeans would have later through their welfare state. But of course, as that middle class country began to become more diverse, more and people and more and more people wanted to get inside the tent, and rightly so, of course, and more and more people made more and more demands on the system, that middle class began to erode for a bunch of reasons, roughly from 1980 on onwards. Inequality 
which was much smaller in the United States than in Europe, uh, at least until 1980, flipped around. And today the U.S. is a more unequal country than the other rich countries. Um, and so how do you fix this? Well, if you can come up with something better, that's great. But basically the way other people have fixed it is, for example, what a lot of Americans are saying now in one way or another, some kind of universal health care, some kind of universal child care, some kind of higher unemployment insurance for a longer period of time, some kind of higher social security and retirement uh, elements. And we could go on and on and on like this. Um, I don't know if this is European. I know that during the last campaign, um, President Trump and his supporters lashed out at those who wanted to turn the United States into Denmark. I know you could also use Canada. You could also use Australia, New Zealand, which is a very often uh, seen as a very liberal, neoliberal country. I, I don't know what term you want to use, but I think this is part of the American discussion today. Uh, it's a discussion we're seeing every day in Congress and within the Biden administration. And I think in that sense, I would like the U.S. to be like the other rich countries, not necessarily like Europe, just like the other rich countries, because it changed. The U.S. evolved. It's not so much the rest of the world that changed. The U.S. has changed. And so I think it should become and will become more like the other rich countries in many ways. Well, I guess this the six trillion dollar budget <laughs> that uh, the that President Biden has sent to Congress is, is does look like it move in that direction. I should mention I'm here at the Hoover Institution, you know, which is the home of Milton Friedman, <laughs> and uh, and and I'm not an economist, but but I get I get to I get to spend some time with a lot of economists here who take a different approach in, in connection with really seeing economic growth, right, and and unleashing the entrepreneurial uh, free market potential of the country as 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 uh, the the way to uh, you know the 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 way to address the income disparities and and the other issues that you bring up in the book, but your your perspective is is invaluable and uh, and I think you should just know that that uh, the uh, Secretary Rice, Condoleezza Rice, our director, has a program started here which we'd love for you to participate in on, on how you know how we do how, how we do address. Uh, you know the, the the loss of confidence, right, and, and free market remedies to uh, you know to to these problems. You know, of course, this this affects the, the really the, the the whole region as you, as you mentioned. And you know, I'm thinking these days of the extreme opposite model, right, of of Cuba. And now, as we have, you know, the the first leader in Cuba who, whose last name isn't Castro, uh, and we've seen different approaches to Cuba over the years. The U.S. and Mexico have differed in their approach to Cuba uh, over the years uh, and taken much different approaches. You know, I had the opportunity to, to, uh, you know, to help put in place a big shift in the Cuba policy because I thought the one under President Obama was failing because it was actually just reinforcing the army and the army's control over the Cuban economy. We've seen some movement in, in Cuba for reform, some calls for, for reform and, uh, and, uh, and 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 maybe of loosening the authoritarian grip uh, of the of the of the Cuban regime. What? How do you see Cuba? How should the United States view Cuba? What can we do together um, in in connection with the Cuba policy? Well, it's as you say, HR, Mexico and the United States over the last 60, 65 years have tended to view the Cuban question very differently. We've never supported the uh, the embargo. 
we always thought that that was a, a misguided policy that would not achieve its goals, and it didn't, which was regime, regime change. Um, many Mexican governments, including the present one, but not the one I was part of, uh, believed that uh, human rights violations and the absence of democracy in Cuba were a strictly Cuban issue. I, I don't think so, and the government I participated didn't think so. And uh, <clears throat> that um, uh, Cuba should be left alone in that sense. So I think that some kind of blend of these two attitudes is what is convenient. I, I think that President Obama's stance, if it had lasted longer, might have been effective. I was not entirely happy with how much I think President Obama and his team gave up on human rights, democracy, and Cuban cooperation in the hem hemisphere's crises, uh, particularly Venezuela. And I mentioned, I use the word cooperation because it's easy for it to say, well, you, want, you wanted to convince the Cubans to, uh, to you know, throw Maduro under the bus. Well, you don't have to put it that way and you don't have to see it that way. It's just cooperation like Mexico, the U.S., Colombia, Chile were cooperating with the Europeans, by the way, and with the U.S. in trying to find a solution in Venezuela that needs Cuban support. Absolutely. Uh, what the Biden administration is going to do, I think, is, is complicated because they have elections in Florida in 2022. And they know how important the Cuban-American vote is and that it's still there. It hasn't gone away. Um, I think they also know that it's going to be difficult to get the Cubans to move on human rights, on democracy, on cooperation, on Venezuela. It's not perhaps, you know, it's very likely that Obama tried and just wasn't able to get them to budge and then had to decide whether he wanted to normalize anyway or forget about it. And I'm pretty sure that the decision is going to come up for the Biden people, as it did for you, I'm sure. Um, but I think they have to find a way to mix all of these things together now that the Castros are no longer uh, in power. But I, you know, I imagine, HR, you know more about this than I do, uh, that they'll wait perhaps until after 2022 because I don't see they see any any gain, any let any mileage in doing anything that might threaten the pos the possibility of winning one of the Senate seats in in Florida in 2022. Well, Jorge, I, I think that we we should be working a lot in, in you know across the, the hemisphere, but I do think the Biden administration came into office anyway with this idea that hey, with, based on the traumas we've been through here in the United States, let's let's put foreign policy kind of on hold. But of course, you know, I mean, to kind of paraphrase, the, the, you might not be interested in foreign policy, but but the world is interested in you, right? And we've seen that with with uh, you know with, with crises in in the Middle East and vis-a-vis -vis Russia and 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 Putin's continuing aggression, the continuing aggression of the of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and but but how about in our hemisphere? What do you think? a Biden approach to the hemisphere ought to be? I mean, what would you recommend? We've mentioned a lot of the problem spots, right? I mean, Nicaragua, uh, you know, Cuba, uh, Venezuela. Uh, but but what do you think are the, the greatest dangers and what we can do? What should we work together on? Uh, what should the agenda be? And what are the opportunities um, across the across the hemisphere? Well, I, I see two, two different uh, areas, HR. The first, and I think the most important one, is that uh, if the Biden administration is serious about its domestic agenda, and I think it is, 
and I uh, largely agree with it. I think that what they're doing is what the United States needs, uh, and it's uh, they're going about it appropriately. You can always argue about this or that expenditure or this or that sorts of financing or this or that priority, but I tend to agree globally with this, and I think that this is the right thing for the United States. It's the right lesson that was learned from the pandemic and from the last 40 years of increasing inequality in the United States. I think the Biden administration should sell that agenda in Latin America. It's economic agenda, it's social agenda, it's climate change agenda. I mean, it's very, very, very important for the president of the United States to tell the president of Brazil that he can't burn the Amazon down. You can't do that. Uh, but not because it's sovereign or not sovereign, but because in a way it affects all of us. So that agenda, I think, should be sold, uh, peddled, promoted, whichever term you prefer, in Latin America with governments that are way to the left of that and governments are to the right of that. It should be sold as what the United States and American society and American government, American military, and this is what you guys have decided that you think you want to do. Uh, you had an election, you have results, elections have consequences. These things are being passed by a Congress, barely, but they are. Um, this is what the hemisphere needs, I think. That's one area that I would emphasize enormously. We haven't had anything like this and since two different radical examples, radically different examples, HR. One was FDR and the other was Reagan. Uh, I happen to agree more with the FDR example. Perhaps you agree more with the Reagan example. But in both cases, the United States promoted or sold a domestic agenda abroad in general and in Latin America in particular. And in both cases, it was very important, very significant. And, you, and you know, no, so Jorge, I was just going to say, I thought I thought that was a fascinating part of your book, this this uh, the final chapter in which you really explore how domestic policy and foreign policy can be connected, and and you you mentioned you write it you write about it extensively in connection with taking on the problem of climate change, but also the competition uh, with China as well. So I was just I was just going to ask you to expound more on that and and what your argument is uh, for that to make that connection. I think the, the Biden administration in particular, and the United States in general, but since the Biden folks are the ones in office today, uh, have uh, an enormous amount of tools in the toolbox to uh, promote a closer US-Latin American relationship where China is present. There's no reason for exclusion. There's no reason for uh, any kind of uh, uh, embargoes or breaks or anything, but where the most important presence is that of the United States. Why? Well, because in, in any case, I happen to believe more in the values that we Mexicans or Latin Americans share with the United States than the ones we share or don't share with China. Now, that's my opinion. Other Latin Americans may have different opinions, unquestionably. But I think at this stage, you know, Latin America, the last half century has gone mostly through transitions to democratic rule, yeah. respect for human rights, market-based economies, open economies, 
And then you have all of the nuances in the world and all of the imperfections in the world. Well, I think that links us to the United States and to Western Europe, yes, much more than with China. But you've got to work on this. It doesn't happen by itself. The United States has to also be, you know, doing the heavy lifting in Latin America in the, I would call it civilization type of conflict or rivalry more than conflict, competition with China. Because the Chinese do have a lot of things to sell and to promote in Latin America. And there are many Latin Americans who uh, welcome some of the Chinese attitudes. And I think it's very important for this to be, you know, uh, uh, I would say, uh, rebutted by the United States. The case of human rights. I think it's a very important issue. I was a board member of Human Rights Watch for 15 years. And when I was in office, I did as much as I could to try and establish true respect for human rights in Mexico. Um, when you have the Chinese saying, look, we'll lend you money from the Asian Industrialization and Infrastructure Bank, and we won't ask any questions whether you pay your workers or you don't, whether you destroy the environment or you don't, whether you have child labor or you don't, none of our business, you do what you want, we'll give you the money. And then you have the Americans saying, hey, hold on a second, for a bunch of things that we want to do together, you really have these uh, agreements that we've done through the free trade agreements, USMCA, NAFTA DR, CAFTA DR, Chile, Colombia, Peru, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, you, we've got these agreements. You are part of the United Nations Human Rights Council. You have signed the American Human Rights Convention, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to respect these things. And we want you to, and we want to work together on this. I think this is another issue where the Biden people should be very active. It's the best form of competition with China. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I think that there's a tendency in the United States these days to be skeptical, skeptical right, about promoting uh, human rights or rule of law or freedom of expression, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and when, in fact, this is not just an exercise in altruism, right? It is the best way to compete with China's authoritarian model. And, uh, and, and, and I think it is our competitive advantage. And, you know, there will always be some who will say, and they may be right on occasion, that over the last, whatever, 150 years, the United States has very often not uh, respected its own principles, its own values in the world at home and in Latin America in particular. And yes, that's, that's true. But I think, you know, people in the Biden administration have been saying, you know, we don't, we're not saying we're perfect. We're, what we're saying is we try to live up to everything we have laid down in, on paper since 1776. We're not perfect. We've made mistakes. We will continue to make them, but, at least, but we're trying. And I think that, you know, you should be able to take these criticisms in stride. Whenever anybody comes up and says, well, yeah, but what about, you know, what about ism? What about when the United States overthrew Allende in Chile? Say, well, yeah, okay. That perhaps wasn't the best idea. It wasn't a great idea. Right. Fine. I didn't live up to respect for human rights under Pinochet in Chile. Okay, true. Let's try and fix that in the future. Right. Let's fix it together. Right. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, you don't hold back on your criticism of, 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 of America and the United States and our, and our history in the book. I mean, that the chapter on, I think of the chapter on historical amnesia, I think you, you call it. And, and, uh, but, but what I really liked about your book too, is that, is you demonstrated that, that we do have the capacity because of our democratic form of government for self-improvement. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that's what we ought to take pride in and be more confident in these days. So, uh, you know, in conclusion, where you've been so great with your time here, I, I'd like to ask you really ab- about what you endeavored to do in the book, right. To provide uh, what you describe as a foreigner's opinion of the United States, but, but a, a foreigner's opinion from the perspective of somebody who, uh, who you say, you, you, and you do, it's clear, it comes out in the book. Do you have affection and concern for the state of, uh, of, of the United States. Uh, but then you also brought the perspective of someone who could look with a bit of indifference, right. Of a foreigner and an observer of, of America. And as you see our country, you really emerge from these traumas of a pandemic, a recession associated with the pandemic, the social divisions uh, laid bare by George Floyd's murder and the concerns of, over unequal treatment under the law and inequality of opportunity. And then the crazy, you know, vitriolic partisan season we're still in, you know, associated with the the uh, the 2020 election, the assault on the Capitol, and and just the polarization we see from a partisan political perspective. It's it's been a rough, it's been a rough year and a half or so, right? What, what what's your view of, of of the United States, and what's your advice? Um, uh, are you hopeful? Uh, please just share. Could you just share your overall uh, your overall uh, prognosis, I guess, for us? I'm certainly very, very hopeful, uh, HR, because in the pandemic, we saw perhaps some of the things that some people don't like about the United States, but we, we saw a lot of the best of the United States uh, coming up with the vaccine, being able to deploy it at incredibly fast rates and extension and universalization of the innovation, the, apply, the application of science to practice, to technology. Um, I mean, this is the United States at its very best. A little bit late, but we will see American generosity in the next few months, I think, as American vaccines become available all over the world, and particularly in Africa, where they're most needed, because they're lagging far behind even us in Latin America, and we're lagging far behind. But uh, I'm sure we will see American generosity and giving, uh, as Clinton liked to call it. and so in that sense, I'm very hopeful because I'm, I think we've seen some of the most interesting, best, most positive facts, admirable features of American life in the pandemic. I also think, and we're beginning to see, but that, that remains to be determined, um, the capacity of either self-improvement, or I'd like to use a term, reinvention. The, yeah. US, the U.S. is able to reinvent itself every, whatever, 50 years, 60, 70 years, uh, depending on the cycles of history, on uh, the economic cycles, on what happens in the rest of the world, uh, where you begin to have real, uh, an enormous amount of serious issues being debated in the United States and being acted upon in the United States, whether it's revisionist history or uh, woke or the culture wars, you don't have to get into the weeds necessarily one by one. I like to look at the broader picture. The United States is looking back at its history in a way that I find admirable. Um, I know it's uncomfortable. I know sometimes it can be a real pain, a pain in the classroom, (laughs) a pain in the media, 
uh, pain everywhere. And we're both familiar with this from our teaching. Um, but I think that, you know, this is an admirable part of how the United States can do this. The Europeans are having an enormous amount of difficulty. Let's give you an example in Mexico. We have a big statue, a set, an, an important statue of Christopher Columbus on one of main, Mexico City's main avenues, Reforma. Uh, last year, Columbus Day, um, the mayor of Mexico City, who is probably going to be President Lopez Obrador's successor, she decided that she didn't want riots and she didn't want graffiti and she didn't want a problem. So on October 11th, midnight, a crew came in and just took the statue away for restoration. We haven't seen it since and we won't see it. How did this happen in Mexico without a debate in the classroom, in the media, in the Congress, in society at large? We didn't go into whether there should be a statue of Christopher Columbus or not. You have different stances on that. In the US, you have a discussion about this. It's admirable. We'll see what the results are. But I think this is something that makes me at least even more hopeful and have even more affection uh, for the United States and for Americans than I have uh, before. I say, regardless of the outcome, any specific case. Dr. Castaneda. Always a pleasure to talk with you. On behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Wonderful to have this time with you. Thank you, General. It was a real honor, a real pleasure. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.